So I, I rode my bicycle for a year in 2010 uh, from uh, Canada to Colombia, and as part of that journey, I discovered that basically a billion people in the world didn't have uh, access to clean drinking water. So I began this journey and did some higher level education and been on a series of trips with my friends in the last six years. That's all led us to this, to this spot now where we've become very interested in a small scale uh, decentralized desalinization projects. It's really the future of water. Welcome everyone. I'm glad you could be with us for today's Beach Talk. It's my passion to help us understand every word of God that's in the word of God. God has so many wonderful things that he wants to say to us every day if we'll read and understand and apply them to our life. So my objective is always the same. It's uh, helping to make disciples who make disciples who plant churches that plant churches. So in this way, we can see Jesus be a beautiful grassroots movement in and through our lives, wherever God wants to take us. Matthew 13, verse 34 and 35 says, all these things Jesus spoke to the multitudes in parables and without a parable, he did not speak to them that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet saying, I will open my mouth in parables. I will, I will utter things kept secret from the foundation of the world. Now, this does not mean that Jesus never in his entire teaching and preaching ministry spoke in anything other than a parable. Uh, it describes this particular season of Jesus's ministry, again, in the context of increasing opposition from the Jewish leaders people who had the power. Now, implying that this was Jesus's constant custom, in short, parables were an essential part of his spoken ministry. So he did do this. He says, I will open my mouth in parables. Another reason Jesus taught about the kingdom community in parables is because the church itself was part of the things which would, which would have been kept secret from the foundation of the world and would not be revealed in fullness until later on, until after he uh, was resurrected. Now, kept secret from the foundation of the world, later Paul expresses this same idea about the church in Ephesians 3. Now, verses 36 through 43, then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house and his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the tares in the field. He answered them and said, he who sows good seed is the son of man, the field is the world, the good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil, the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned to the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and when they gather out his kingdom, all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. <clears throat> in his explanation, Jesus made it clear what the different figures in the parable represent. The field represents the world. The good seeds represent God's true people, the sons and daughters of the kingdom. The tares represent false believers in the world, the sons of the wicked one like tares among weak who superficially look like God's true people. In this we see that the parable of the tares 
changes the figure slightly from the parable of the soils. Now, in the parable of the soils, the seed represented the word of God. Here it represents true believers. Now, the point of the parables is completely different. The parable of the soils shows us how men and women receive and respond to the word of God, and the parable of the tares of the field shows how God will divide his true people from false believers at the end of the age. Jesus announced God's kingdom, and this would lead many of his hearers to expect a cataclysmic disruption in society, right? an absolute division between the sons of light and the sons of darkness. It was to this impatience that the parable was directed. Now, this parable illustrates not necessarily that there will be false believers among true believers in the church, although that is true to some extent. Otherwise, Jesus would have explained that the field is the church, yet he carefully said that the field is the world. D.A. Carson said, now, there's no greater importance of the history of the church has been this view that this actually means that the field is the church. The view was largely assumed by the early church fathers and the tendency to interpret the parable that way was reinforced by early Christian thought. Now Augustine made the interpretation struggling against the Donatists, which were the reformers at that time. So the point is clear, both in the world and in the kingdom community. Ultimately, it is not the job of the church to weed out those who appear to be Christians but actually aren't. That's God's job at the end of the age. So as long as God's people are still in this world, the field, there will be unbelievers among them. But it should not be because God's people receive unbelievers as if they were believers, ignoring either the belief or the conduct of professed believers, there's additional significance in saying the field of this world instead of the field of Israel. Now this brief statement presupposes a mission beyond Israel for the whole world. Now clearly the enemy plants counterfeits in the world and in the kingdom community, and this is why merely being a member of a Christian community isn't enough. We often don't consider that the angels of God have a special role in the judgment of the world, yet they do and are worthy of respect because of that role. So Jesus used this parable clearly to illustrate the truth that there are two different paths and eternal destinies. A furnace of fire represents one destiny and radiant glory represents another. Charles Spurgeon said, the fate of these ungodly ones will be fire, the most terrible of punishments, but this will not annihilate them, for they shall exhibit the surest tokens of a living woe, wailing and gnashing of teeth. Now the wheat comes into God's barn from all over the world, from all ranks of society, from all ages of God's church. The one thing they have in common is that they were sown of the Lord and from the good seed of his word. Now verse 44, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like the treasure hidden in a field which a man found and hid, and yet for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. So the field is the world, but the man does not represent 
the believer because we have nothing to buy this treasure with. Instead, Jesus is the man who gave all that he had to buy the field. Now this parable and the one following are different in character than the previous three. The previous three parables, the wheat and the tares, the mustard seed and the leaven, each spoke of corruption in the kingdom community. These parables speak of how highly the king values the people and his kingdom. Now the treasure so wonderful that Jesus would give all to purchase is the individual believer. This powerfully shows how Jesus gave everything to redeem the whole world to preserve a treasure in it, and the treasure are God's people. D.A. Carson said, finding the treasure appears to be by chance in a land as frequently ravaged as Palestine. Many people doubtless buried their treasures, but to actually find a treasure would happen once in a thousand lifetimes. Thus, the extravagance of the parable dramatizes the supreme importance of the kingdom. Now, verse 45 and 46, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who, when he had found one pearl of great price, went out and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, Jesus is the buyer, and the individual believer is the pearl that he sees is so valuable that he would happily give it to have it forever. William Barclay says, to the ancient peoples, as we have just seen, a pearl was the loveliest of all possessions. That means that the kingdom of heaven is the loveliest thing in the world. Now, it seems crazy for a merchant to sell all that he had for one pearl, but for this merchant, it would be well worth it. This shows how much he valued the pearl of a great price and how much Jesus values his people. Now, verses 47 through 50, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a, a net that was cast into the sea and gathered some of every kind, which when it was full, they drew to shore and they sat down and gathered the good into vessels, but they threw the bad away. So it will be at the end of the age, the angels will come forth and separate the wicked among the just and cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Jesus shows that the world will remain divided right up until the end and the church will not reform the world ushering in the kingdom there will be both the wicked and the just until the end of the age as also demonstrated in the previous parable of the wheat and the tares so at that time the angels will come forth and assist the king in the work of judgment sending some into the furnace of fire for final judgment the reference as in the weeds is not primarily to a mixed church, but to the division among mankind in general, which the last judgment will bring to light. Verses 51 and 52, Jesus said to them, have you understood all these things? And they said to them, said to him, yes, Lord. Then he said to them, therefore every scribe instructed concerning the kingdom of heaven is like a householder who brings out the treasure things new and old. We wonder if the disciples really did understand Jesus here. However, Jesus did not deny their claim to understanding. Assuming that the disciples did understand, they had an advantage over many other multitudes. The multitude went away, as most people do from sermons, never wiser, understanding nothing, nothing of what they heard, nor caring to understand it. Jesus said that everyone who really knows God's word both will know the old and learn the new of the kingdom. Jesus used the term here simply to describe a teacher. 
The scribes amongst the Jews were not only clerks that were employed in writing, but teachers of the law, like Ezra in Ezra 7. The main idea is that the disciples who had just claimed to understand what Jesus taught are now responsible to bring forth their understanding to others as if they were distributing from the storehouse of their own wisdom and understanding. This storehouse contains both new things and old things. William Barclay said, after you have been instructed by me, you have the knowledge not only of the things you used to know, but of things you never knew before, and even the knowledge which you had before is illuminated by what I have told you. So a lot of, a lot of people, of teachers of the gospel, should not be novices, as 1 Timothy 3 says, or be raw, or be ignorant, but they're to be mighty in the scriptures, they're to be full of God's word, they're to be able to speak, they're to be compassionate, and they're to be able to answer people's questions. Now, verses 53 through 56, now it came to pass when Jesus had finished these parables that he departed from there, and when he had come to his own country, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is this not his mother called Mary and his brothers James and Simon and Judas? And his sisters, are they not all with us? <clears throat> when, when, where did this man get all these things? Now, because these villages were familiar with Jesus as a little boy and accustomed to unspectacular things from him, we may conclude that Jesus must have grown up a very normal boy, unlike the crazy stories that were told in certain books about how he was when he was a baby or a little boy. This question was asked out of prejudice, Yet it can also be asked out of a deep appreciation of the fact that the Son of God took a noble, lowly place. Jesus plainly had many brothers and sisters. Now, he had siblings, um, and that was a part of his life as he grew up. Bible commentator France points out, it is the very ordinariness of Jesus' home background that causes the astonishment in John 6. Adam Clark points out, he says, this insulting question seems to intimate that our Lord's family was a very obscure one and that they were they had a small reputation amongst, amongst the neighbors and for their piety. Now, people bring the same charge against Jesus today. I see those associated with him and they seem lowly or very normal. Jesus, Jesus also must not be special. Well, their reception of Jesus was not welcoming or friendly. They spoke skeptically of him and referred to him as, you know, this man. Now, verses 57 through 58, they were offended at him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor, except in his own country and in his own house. Now, he did not do many works there because of their unbelief. Now, when we think of how strongly Jesus is identified with Nazareth, it's even more surprising to note that the people of Nazareth didn't appreciate it. The success and glory of Jesus seem only to make them more resentful towards him. We often have wrong ideas of what it means to be spiritual. We often think that spiritual people will be much more strange than normal. Therefore, those closest to truly spiritual people see just how normal they are and sometimes think that they aren't that spiritual because they're so normal. 
It's a remark, it's truly remarkable that Jesus was in some manner limited by their unbelief as long as God chooses to work in concert with human beings, developing our ability to partner with him and unbelief can and may hinder God's work. Think about that. God wants to partner with us and is sensitive to the level of our belief and our unbelief. Now this wraps up our time today looking at this part of Matthew. I always like to end my beach talks with a chance to pray. I always ask God for a fresh start. I always ask God to help me start doing some things in my life. Dad, and help me stop doing some things in my life. Maybe you'd like to pray with me right now and just say, God, would you give me a fresh start? Help me to stop doing some things. Help me to start doing some things. I ask you to guide me and to help me in every part of my life. Fill me with your spirit today, in Jesus' name. Amen. And as always, thank you for watching, and have a great day. Thank you for your time. We would love to partner with you. Uh, water is a global problem. It's going to take as many partners as we can to help solve this problem. We'd love for you to partner with us. If you can go to our website at www.oceanwater.com. That's O-C-N-W-T-R.com. We'd love that. Thanks so much.